Good afternoon once again. We'd like to welcome Monsignor Midas from St. Angelo Marisi, just a little bit of his story before we begin. He was born in 1953. Monsignor Midas was raised in South St. Louis City at St. Francis de Sales Parish. He attended St. Pius V grade school and upon graduation went to Prep South, Cardinal Glennon College and then Kenry Glennon Seminary. He was ordained to the priesthood in 1979 and has served in parishes all over the Archdiocese from the inner city St. Louis, St. Louis County, Jefferson, Franklin, and St. Genevieve counties. You've covered the whole Archdiocese. <laughs> For 14 years, he served as spiritual director to the Missionaries of Charity and was the founder and head of the Archdiocesan Reclamations Project for 18 years. <clears throat> in 2008, Monsignor Midas was named a chaplain to the Holy Father, by the Holy Father, to Cardinal Raymond Burke. To Cardinal, by Cardinal Raymond Burke, I'm sorry. He celebrated his 40th Jubilee in 2019 and currently serves as pastor as our neighboring parish, St. Angela Marisi. Let's welcome Monsignor Midas. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Come Holy Spirit, come and be with us. Enlighten our minds with the light from above. Inflame our hearts with the fire of divine charity, that everything we say and do may give us a deeper knowledge of you. From that knowledge of fuller love, and from that love of more faithful service, we ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. St. Norbert. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, it's so nice to see so many people who give up a Saturday afternoon so close to Christmas time to come and spend time to get deeper in their faith, especially about the Holy Eucharist, which we're gonna talk about today. My given topic is on Eucharistic miracles. I'd like to begin with a story. Uh, back in 1834, when um, Bishop Rosati built the old cathedral, it was probably the most impressive building on the whole American frontier. Uh, quite, and it's still a very, um, it's a jewel of the archdiocese. And the story goes that around 1837 or 1838, Joseph Smith, the man who invented Mormonism, happened to be in St. Louis and saw this magnificent house of God, this temple. And so he went to Bishop Rosati and asked for the privilege of preaching in this magnificent house of God. And uh, Rosati, knowing who he was, said, uh, well, um, okay, but you gotta do something for me first. What is that? You've got to prove to me that you are a true man of God. He said, how do I do that? Raise somebody from the dead. <laughs> he did not preach in the old cathedral, to say the least. Because that's the whole point, isn't it? Uh, miracles. Um, you know, they asked Jesus, by what authority do you do the things you do? And basically, the answer was, well, I just walked on water, you know? I just changed water into wine. I, I calmed the winds and the seas. You know, the blind see, the deaf hear, the cripples walk, and I'm even bringing people back from the dead. What do you mean by what authority, you know? We had this story in the gospel just a couple of days ago about, um, you know, he's in St. Peter's house, and they start ripping a hole in the roof of the house to let this paraplegic or quadriplegic in. And Jesus looks at the guy and says, your sins are, have been forgiven. And uh, they say, who, who does this man think he is? Only God can forgive sins. He said, well, I'll tell you what. And so he tells the guy, pick up his mat and walk. In other words, 
You know, can you guys make the, the cripples walk? Can you hurt, cure quadriplegism, if there is such a word? No, but I can. And just maybe, if I can make this guy walk, this, par this man who's paralyzed, just maybe I have the authority to forgive sins as well. When we argue um, apologetics, you know, trying to make the case for the faith, you know, we talk about Jesus Christ, and the, one of the things that comes up is that he worked actual miracles. Even his enemies, the people that hated him, had to admit he was working miracles. They said he did it by the power of Satan. He was using black magic, basically, to work his miracles, but they could not deny he was actually working miracles. Uh, either the man born blind in St. John's Gospel is the greatest shill in the history of the universe, the guy faked being blind for 20-something years from birth till Jesus showed up, or he really was born blind and Jesus really did give him back the power to see. And my brothers and sisters, that's pretty much what it comes down to. Miracles are there as a sign of authority, and, um, and they also are there to engender faith. Um, you know, this coming Sunday's gospel, tomorrow's gospel, is the encounter with John the Baptist, and, you know, John is in prison, and he's awaiting execution, basically. I probably doesn't know this, but, you know, Herod's going to have him killed before too long. And he sends his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the one? Um, and, you know, and now this is a big question, you know, did John really doubt? Maybe he did. I don't know. He wasn't omniscient. He would not know everything. Maybe Jesus wasn't quite living up to all the messianic expectations he was familiar with. You know, that he was thinking that, you know, the people said about he'd raise some kind of an army and take on the Romans. He's not doing that. Rather, he's preaching love, you know. Maybe he really isn't the guy. Or maybe John did this for the sake of his disciples, you know. But whatever event, they go to Jesus and ask him, John wants to know, are you the one? And Jesus doesn't say yes, he doesn't say no. He just says, look, Go tell John what you see. The blind see, the cripples walk, the deaf hear. Isn't this what you'd expect when the Messiah comes? Okay, well, there it is then. Miracles accompany the Messiah, and that's exactly what we see with Jesus Christ. The point is that miracles do happen. Uh, EWTN used to have, I don't know if they still have it or not, but Dale Alquist, who was the head of the Chesterton Society, um, G.K. Chesterton, used to have this series, and, and part of which was that he would get these actors. One guy would play Chesterton, and somebody else would play somebody that Chesterton had debated, either Clarence Darrow, the great lawyer who um, tried the Leopold and Loeb case in the Scopes Monkey trial, or a guy named Blatchford, or H.G. Wells, or George Bernard Shaw, somebody, Nietzsche, you know, people like that. And uh, the one thing that, and of course the subject was faith. You know, does God exist? Does he, does he not? And of course, the other people argue that God doesn't exist, and Chesterton, of course, argued that he did. But the one thing his opponents always brought up is the idea of miracles, that, you know, they're basically saying miracles are beyond the laws of nature. Well, yeah, that's exactly what a miracle is. By definition, it's a suspension of the laws of nature. Yeah, these things don't happen regularly. <laughs> there is an order to things, and that things usually go that way. For example, if you lose your arm, it usually doesn't grow back, you know. But there are times when it does, and it's like, ooh, you know. This is some kind of a miracle, isn't it? And, but the thing is, they say these things, because they are out of the uh, realm of belief, they just don't happen. 
Um, and of course, Chesterton says, well, <laughs> yes, they do happen, you know. How do you explain these things? I was in Montreal oh, a few years ago, and they have the Oratory of St. Joseph there that was built by uh, uh, Brother Andre. And, um, and you walk through, and it's kind of like lured. You see all these wheelchairs, crutches, things like that that are no longer needed because people were miraculously healed here. And then you see artificial limbs, and you go, did somebody's arm grow back? <laughs> you know, I, yeah, I mean, that stuff does happen. And again, it's a miracle. Um, it's beyond the laws of nature. And by these things, the Lord Jesus establishes for us exactly who he is. You know, back in the 19th century, there was, um, the Germans came up with this philosophy called rationalism. And it's based on the really stupid um, notion that the human mind is capable of under, understanding everything there is. And therefore, since miracles, um, are beyond understanding, miracles just don't happen. That's what the, the thinking was. And you see an awful lot of that. I mean, when I was at Kenrick back in the 70s, oh my goodness, um, we didn't really talk miracles. I was just talking with some priest classmates of mine the other day, and one guy brought up, we didn't really talk about miracles, did we? No, we didn't. If anything, they tried to poo-poo the miracles. The Protestant theologian Bultmann used to say that Modern man cannot accept miracles, therefore we shouldn't be preaching them. Shouldn't be preaching them? You know, <laughs> they're happening for crying out loud. That's exactly what we should be preaching. But that's the whole point, my brothers and sisters. Um, and, um, uh, you know, I, I, we didn't talk about deep demonic possession either. I mean, it never came up, ever. I, you know, I've never performed an exorcism. I wouldn't know how, you know, we just never trained in that. In fact, I know uh, back in those days, I knew Jesuits who had actually participated in the exorcism, you know, the one that the book and the movie were based on, who didn't believe in Satan. They didn't believe there was such a thing as the devil. I go, are you kidding me? How could you, yeah, well, anyway. That's uh, stuff, that kind of stuff is hard to understand. But the whole idea, my brothers and sisters, is that God definitely performs miracles. And the people who just, for whatever reason, because of their philosophy, can't accept it, well, they just can't accept it. I know the Polish have a wonderful saying, and that is, if you want to beat a dog, you can always find a stick to beat him with. And that's pretty much what we see. People just don't want to believe in miracles, and so they come up with all kinds of bizarre, and sometimes very clever, explanations. I think it was Voltaire or Rousseau, one of those guys of the so-called Enlightenment, who explained that Jesus didn't really multiply loaves and fishes. What he did is he got the people who were there who brought a lunch to share with the people that didn't bring one. Oh, oh that's clever. Uh, that may have taken a, more power on Jesus's part than actually doing it himself. But, uh, you know, they talk about, and, and what I heard was just really, that when Jesus walked on water, what happened was every time he put his foot down, this blast of Arctic air froze the water and he's walking on this series of, I'm going, I'd just rather believe he walked on water. It's a, it's a lot easier explanation. I mean, geez, but there we go. Um, you know, there's all kinds of famous miracles. Um, Fatima, you know, the, the children of Fatima said that the, on the last day in, in October of 1917, 
the Blessed Mother was going to perform this great sign. And 70,000 people showed up, including a bunch of skeptics, people who came simply to scoff, to make fun of these rubes, these simpletons, these, you know, uh, low-life people, you know, um, and to laugh at them. These were communists, these were socialists, these were rationalists, they were all this stuff. Well, it rained like the bejeebers that day. The, the mud was literally six inches deep. It was like walking through a foot of snow. But the people slogged up the hill. They got drenched, absolutely drenched. And then all of a sudden, the sun seemed to come closer to Earth, start spinning. And then it came closer to Earth, so close, in fact, that a lot of people dove into the mud to get away from it. And then all of a sudden, the sun was back in the sky and the people stood up, and their clothes were completely dry. The mud was no more. 70,000 people had seen that, including one guy who was a communist who came from a newspaper to write articles and make fun. The guy went into a mental institution for six months because he was so, I, you know, he knew what he was seeing, he knew it was there, and yet, you know, his rationalism said, you know, it can't happen, you know, so there we go. Uh, all the miracles that lured, there really aren't that many that have been documented and, ra and, and ratified by the Vatican, but the ones that are. Um, back in the early 20th century, there was a young doctor named Carell. And um, the thing about Dr. Carell is that this man would go on to win the Nobel Prize in medicine. So this guy is no slouch. I mean, he's, but he was not a believer until he got to Lourdes. And there's a woman there who, um, you know, had this terrible disease. She was literally hours, if not minutes, from death. And she had a horribly distended abdomen, and she looked just absolutely horrible. She, she wasn't white, she wasn't pale, she was green, you know. She was a goner. And they dumped her in the waters at Lourdes, and Corral and this other physician friend of his were there, both of whom were skeptics, you know. All of a sudden, Corral noticed that she looks different, doesn't she look different to you? And the other guy said, nah, 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 she looks the same to me. Oh, okay. But then he starts taking notes, very clinically describing minute by minute the changes taking place in this woman. And uh, within an hour and a half time, she was back to normal size. Her color was absolutely perfect. She got on the train that night and went back home to where she was from, you know. And Carell left thinking, <laughs> wondering what's going on here. The other doctors, ah, it was just, ah, it was, it was nothing. It was nothing. This woman's life was saved miraculously, way beyond the calls of, of, of science that can explain. Uh, we had our, in here in the archdiocese, uh, one miracle ratified by the Vatican, that was Ignatius Strecker, down at the old St. Joseph Shrine. This is in the 1860s. And Strecker was working in a soap factory down by the, where the dome is, where the Rams used to pretend to play football, you know, and uh, they're down there. And the poor guy, he was doing some arc welding and a particle flew out, hit him in the side and caused a cancerous lesion and he was dying. So they called for one of the priests from St. Joseph's Shrine, he came over. And this man had a real devotion to Peter Claver, who at that time was up for canonization. And he actually had a second-class relic, a stole, that had been used by Peter Claver. So he gave him the last rites, and, he, and before he left, he blessed him with the, and touched the relic of Peter Claver to the man's wound. He got up, 
And being German, he went back to work, you know. An Irishman would have taken the rest of the day off. An Italian would take the rest of the week off, you know. But he was Dutch, and he went back to work. In fact, his grandson, also named Ignatius Strecker, wound up becoming the Bishop of Kansas City, our neighbor to the West. Very interesting. And then he got pa Padre Pio. My goodness, the laws of nature just did not apply to that guy. I mean, ugh. You probably know the stories as well as I do, if not better. But one of my favorite stories of him is that one day he, you know, he wasn't feeling so good. So the doctor came over and said, okay, let me take your temperature. And he puts the thermometer in his mouth and he brings it out. He had maxed out the thermometer. It only goes up like 108 because people don't live after 108, you know? And he's looking at it and he says, oh, all right, puts it back in. Oh my, he maxed it out again. Finally, he had to get a meat thermometer. He had a temperature of 122, you know? And he's sitting there and he's maybe a little sweat, you know? Goes, How do you feel? I feel okay. Well, you got 122 fever, my gosh, you know? How does that happen? Again, these things do happen. And, you know, that's, the, and so it all leads up to, you know, what Jesus said to St. Thomas. He said, Thomas, you believe because you have seen. Blessed are those who have not seen, but still believe. There's people who demand signs, and Jesus always said, it's an evil age that seeks a sign. Uh, you should believe first. And the, all that is based on the, just, just say for example, just say for example, your beloved says to you, prove to me that you love me. Ooh, you got a problem on your hands. Because if they're in that agnostic mode, there's not one thing you can do to get them to, you know, no matter what you do, no matter how kind you are, no matter how, whatever you do, oh, you're just doing that. Well, honey, you got to suspend your disbelief. And God has the exact same problem. There's people who say, prove to me, prove to me. There's nothing God can do, you know. If you're in that rationalistic, agnostic mode, there's nothing God can do. You've got to let go of your unbelief. Jesus goes back to his hometown in Nazareth, and, uh, he, and the gospel writers tell us he can perform no miracles there. Why? Because they had no faith in him. And every time Jesus does miraculously heal somebody, he tells that person explicitly, it is your faith that has made you whole. The whole idea behind miracles, the purpose of them, and that really is the point, I suppose, is to engender faith which is why the apostles were able to perform miracles. In fact, the first couple of generations of the church were the age of miracles. And again, it was to make the apostles preaching more attractive and more, again, just like Jesus, you know? Where do you get the authority? Well, I just healed this dead guy, you know, brought him back to life, you know, okay, you know? I can do that, maybe, maybe you should listen to me and what I have to say. Because that really is what the purpose of all this is, is to engender faith. I'm going to lay a word on you just, just for pure trivia. The word is thaumaturgy. You know, we got metallurgy, liturgy, thaumaturgy. That means working wonders. So Padre Pio was a thaumaturge. Um, Jesus was a thaumaturge. And we've got all kinds of saints throughout the years who were thaumaturges. Okay. Now the Vatican has some pretty strict standards on miracles. Uh, in fact, the Vatican has a task force that investigate these things, which is one of the reasons why uh, the canonization process is so expensive, because they bring in all these scientists to verify the miracles and make sure they really are happening. 
exactly as, as said. The very, when it, when it comes to the causes of saints, the first thing is that the, the uh, disease from which the person is cured has got to be life-threatening. If it's not life-threatening, they don't count it as a miracle. I remember uh, I was on retreat once with Father Grishel up in New Jersey, and uh, he was telling the story about this, uh, there was an order of nuns whose foundress was up for canonization, and, but she wasn't canonized yet. And one of the sisters had a terrible cancer of the jaw, and, and she, they had to remove most of her lower jaw. I mean, talk about, you know. Well, she's at the dentist, and they take her back into the room. She's sitting in the dental chair. And while she's sitting there waiting for the dentist to show up, her sisters out in the waiting room were saying prayers to their foundress, praying for sister, you know. So the dentist comes in to work on her, and her lower jaw grew back in the few minutes, you know, from the time she entered the room. to, And so he says, well, I thought you said she had, well, yeah, she did. Oh, look at this, you know, and, and the Vatican would not accept that as a miracle because her condition wasn't life-threatening. Talk about a tough standard. Uh, the, the, the cure has to take place either instantaneously or at least pretty quick. Um, like, for example, the one with Dr. Carell took an hour and a half. Okay, that's within the time frame. The one with Ignatius Strecker, that took, you know, just, it was instantaneous. Okay. Um, it's got to be permanent. In other words, it can't be like two weeks later it comes back and the person dies. No, it's got to be, well, not t literally permanent, but you know, at least long-lasting. Um, you have to establish a link between the prayers to the saint and the cure itself. You just can't assume it happened. And that there's no other possible explanation. Um, for example, uh, I, I don't know if this was a miracle or not, but many years ago I was at a different parish from what I'm at now. And I was called over to Christian Northeast Hospital here to anoint a lady who was in the last stages, of, she was actively dying. That's the phrase they use nowadays. And so I go over there with my oils and I expected her husband to be there, but he wasn't because he was at Hutchins over here picking out a coffin for her because she was a goner. Well, I explained to her, you know, that the sacrament of the sick is the healing power of Christ. And, you know, sometimes if you have faith, these miracles do happen. I anointed her. She left the hospital the next day perfectly fine. Now, would the Vatican recognize that as a miracle? No, because she had been taking chemotherapy. That could have been the thing. Okay. But even with those strict standards, there's a lot of things that come through, and the Vatican does wind up acknowledging them as actual um, miracles. And that's one of the things that, you know, we argue against the Muslims. Um, Jesus worked miracles. Mohammed did not. Now, there are traditions, later traditions in Islam, that Mohammed did do a few things. But generally speaking, no, they just, and they admit, no, he, he didn't work any wonders. Jesus did. Okay, that's our guy. Now we get down to the Eucharistic miracles. Okay. Uh, Eucharistic miracles, by definition, are just out of this world. Um, we see these things, and they just, you know, if you're a rationalist and you got this small <laughs> cranium way of thinking, it's going to blow your mind to pieces. It's interesting how uh, most of these Eucharistic miracles have the same things in common. Um, uh, 
And we don't really start seeing these until about the eighth century. And the reason why, I suspect, is because that's when the church came up with the whole idea of transubstantiation. The church had always believed the Eucharist was Jesus's true body and blood, but we didn't have a really good way of explaining that. We came up with transubstantiation, you know how it goes. Uh, the appearances remain exactly the same. It still looks the same, it still tastes the same, it still has the same effect on you biologically, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But its essence, what it is, has changed. It's no longer wine, it's Jesus's blood. It's no longer bread, it's Jesus's body. That's the part that changes. The other parts do not change at all. Uh, so what we have in, in practically all these cases is either a priest who is doubting transubstantiation, and so he's entertaining thoughts and doubts when he's offering the consecration or saying the words of the consecration. Then all of a sudden, the Eucharistic miracle happens. Either that or you've got a lay person either stealing the host or trying to sneak it out of church or falls out of their mouth, something like that. And uh, when that happens, again, uh, the miracle takes place. Now there's different types of um, Eucharistic um, miracles. Um, there are saints who, for example, fasted and ate nothing but the Blessed Sacrament. People like Teresa of Avila, people like Paschal Balon, uh, people like, um, uh, well, there's, there's, there's been many other people. Catherine of Sienna is another one. They would uh, eat, consume, they would go to a deep, strict fast and eat nothing but the Eucharist, and they gain weight. Now, I've had a lot of people over the years complain to me that they go on these diets and they gain weight, you know. I'm thinking, hmm, <laughs> what about those potato chips you load up on right before bed? You know, I mean, that's a, that's a whole different thing. But no, this is, uh, and you know, it, it's a, it's a well-documented phenomenon. Um, there's another kind that is called supernatural communion. These are ones where people receive the Holy Eucharist from angels. The children of Fatima apparently were beneficiaries of that. Teresa Newman, a more recent person, uh, apparently received communion from the angels. Uh, sometimes the Blessed Sacrament passes through some kind of, like in one case in fire, but it was not burned up or consumed. Uh, there was one in Siena in 1730 where um, at the Church of St. Catherine, uh, it, was the, it was right before on the eve of Assumption, so there was a lot of hosts in the tabernacle in, in the ciborium, and some punks broke in the night before and, and raided the tabernacle. Uh, they wanted the, the gold vessels, and so th they didn't want the Eucharist, so they took it and dumped the hosts into a poor box. Now this poor box had been there for decades, if not centuries, and it was filthy. It had dead bugs and it had, uh, you know, cobwebs and it was really disgusting. And so they, they never got the ciborium back, but they did find the hosts and they were in, sitting in this mess. You know, they were in perfect shape, but they were sitting in this mess. So they put them back in a ciborium and didn't know what to do with them. So they just left them there and left them there and left them there. This was 1730, becomes 1750, becomes 1830, becomes 1930. Comes the year 2000, I'm in Siena. I'm there at the church. I'm on sabbatical. I run into a priest in the church and he says, would you like to see the miraculous hosts? And I go, 
miraculous hosts. <laughs> you know, I didn't know about this. He tells me about it, and he says, these hosts are almost 300 years old. They are in perfect shape. I said, really? So sure enough, God bless him. He takes me up, we open the tabernacle. I pull the lid off, there it is. And I just, I, 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 it was so overwhelmed. I just burst into the Tantum Ergo, and, and the whole church started singing Tantum Ergo. It was uh, an interesting thing. Uh, that's a one, another kind of Eucharistic miracle. There's the times when the host actually levitates. Um, the host just kind of hovers in, in the air. Um, that's been known to happen as well. The rarest kind of Eucharistic miracle, and the one who, um, that gets most of the play, is where the host actually either starts bleeding, actual human blood, or turns to flesh and blood. This happens, again, it's very rare. It happened in uh, Lanciano in the eighth century. It's the first known case of that happening. And it's amazing how uh, every time it does happen, they notice the same phenomena. First of all, that the tissue is always heart muscle uh, taken from the, um, the heart. Uh, secondly, the blood is always type AB. Now, type AB blood is the rarest form. It is the universal, what, donor, I guess, huh? Recipient, I always get that wrong. Thank you very much. Um, but what really makes it interesting is that on the Shroud of Turin, which really is Jesus' burial cloth, I don't think there's any question about that. Anybody who doubts that is just, you know, just ignoring the evidence. Uh, that there, the literal blood of Christ is on the Shroud of Turin, and they tested it. Guess what type blood it is? It's AB, you know. Uh, so every time this miracle takes place, um, th these are the phenomena that are associated with it. It happened again in Balsano or Vieto uh, in the 12th, 13th century, 13th century, I guess. A priest who doubted that the Eucharist was Jesus' true body and blood. He's saying the words, this is my body, and all of a sudden the host starts to bleed profusely and it covers the corporal. And if you go to the Cathedral of Orvieto to this day, you can find that blood-stained corporal on display in the one side chapel. That's the one on the left. The other one on the right is one of my favorite, um, contains some of my favorite works of Catholic art. Uh, it's an early Renaissance depiction of the resurrection of the body. And I don't know who the painter was, but I hope he's right. When I was uh, at St. Gerard Magella Parish, I had a catechism class, and this sweet dear soul, Ruth O'Leary, 96 years old, used to come to the class every day. Uh, the poor thing had a really bad scoliosis. Her, her back looked like a question mark. It was really just, she was that bent over, but she was a sweet, sweet gal. She never said anything. She had been a school teacher. But one day she had, we were talking about the resurrection of the body and she says, Father, I got a question for you. What is it, Ruth? She says, well, when I, my body and soul get back together again, which body will I have? The one when I was 21 or this one? I go, well, Ruth, it's gonna be wonderful. I don't know, but it's gonna be wonderful. But like I say, I hope this artist had it right because he shows all these people coming out of their graves and these guys are buff. They are toned, they are in shape. They've been pumping iron all the while they were in the grave, I guess. I hope this guy got it right. Anyway, so that's another reason to go to Orvieto. Um, 
There's a Bano in France, Bano in France, uh, same thing, the host turns to blood. It fell out of a woman's mouth and it landed on the cloth, on the, on the um, altar rail, and it just dissolved into blood and, and they, they couldn't wash it out. Uh, at Holy Cross Parish up in Baden, Monsignor Hellriegel had a representation of the Valdorn Corporal, a similar kind of thing. The priest was uh, having entertaining doubts about the Blessed Sacrament. He, t he accidentally hit the chalice and tipped it a little bit, and drops of the precious blood fell on the corporal, and they formed themselves into the face of Christ. Hmm. Okay, it's another one. Um, as recently as 1996, in Buenos Aires, where the Archbishop was uh, Jorge Bergoglio, now known as Francis, Pope Francis, um, there was a, a priest, uh, the, the, the host started bleeding, um, turned to flesh, and so he contacted the Archbishop, Archbishop Bergoglio, and he said, uh, just put it in the tabernacle, don't, let's not talk about this, you know. Well, it sat there for three years, and it didn't decompose, it didn't change at all, it just sat there. And so finally, uh, Archbishop Bergoglio said, we need to get this thing analyzed. And sure enough, it was heart, heart muscle tissue. It was type AB blood. Um, it was also, um, yeah, it was also one, I don't know, they could tell this by the antibodies and the white blood cells, that the person whose tissue this was, was alive, you know, had been living, this is not dead tissue, he'd been alive, and was horribly beaten. Whoa, you know, how they can tell that? But that's science for you. They say, follow the science, that's where the science leads. My brothers and sisters, this is amazing stuff. And lastly, the kind of image we, or the miracle we see is where um, inside the, the, the host itself, uh, some kind of an image is formed, either of the face of Christ or the nativity of Christ or something like that. Uh, you can actually see inside the host uh, some kind of a thing, an image depicted. Now, over the centuries, there were a lot of saints um, who had, uh, this is a kind of Eucharistic miracle, and the effects that it has on holy people. The first one is where the recipient of Holy Communion just goes into a kind of ecstasy. Uh, St. Teresa of Avila is one of the classic case of that. St. Francis Borgia. Uh, St. <laughs> Francis Borgia would start Mass at the usual time, I don't know, 7.30, whatever, 6 o'clock, and by Vespers, which is evening prayer, he's still celebrating Mass. <laughs> uh, he spent all day praying Mass and because he just got so wrapped up in, in ecstasy in the receiving the Blessed Sacrament. We have certain saints who, when they receive the Holy Communion, they have the gift of tears. Um, St. Joan of Valois and St. Clare of Assisi would be two saints who had that gift. That the minute they receive Holy Communion, they start to weep and not just it's not so much emotional, it's a tears of faith and gratitude. Uh, sometimes the reception of Holy Communion produces fire. They say Philip Neri glowed when he received Holy Communion and sparks, actual sparks would come out of the man. Whoa, you know. Um, sometimes light, St. John of the Cross would receive Holy Communion and he would start to glow. Uh, sometimes the saints would levitate. Uh, my patron, St. Angela Marisi, was one such saint. 
Joseph Cupertino was another one, um, Benedict Labray. Uh, Benedict Labray was great. Um, he used to hang out in the church of Santa Maria a Monti, which is about two blocks from the Colosseum and right next to, not, not right next to, but close to the church of St. Peter in Chains, where uh, Michelangelo's famous Moses is. And he used to hang out there, and uh, every afternoon he would say prayers after Mass, and he would start to float. And the guy who was the janitor, who gave testimony at his canonization, talked about how, oh yeah, you know, I would sweep the floor, and then I waited for him to start floating so I could sweep underneath him. You know? <laughs> and he just said that very like, yeah, you know, yeah, just very, happened every day. Um, there's a name for that, it's called Romanita. That means Romanness. That, yeah, you just kind of, okay, you know, we should take this from you. <laughs> yeah, you know. Um, but apparently it was a phenomenon that everybody witnessed. Um, you talk about, yeah, these are simple-minded people who are easily deluded. No, this is stuff that happened all the time. People saw this stuff. Um, this is not anything uh, outrageous. And then you have conversions. Um, my, famous, my favorite conversion story of the Eucharist is the story of Andre Frassard. Now, Andre Frassard lived in the early part of the 20th century. His parents were members of the left wing of the French Communist Party. Now, that's not just being in the Communist Party, you're pretty far out there, but they're the left wing, so these guys are really out there. And they were so anti-religious that they made sure that they took their vacation every year in the one town in France that didn't have any churches. <laughs> they just want to be bothered with church bells when they're on vacation, I guess. Well, Frassard was supposed, and he used to write for the magazine Figaro, which I think is still being published. But anyway, he was supposed to meet a friend of his for dinner on a given night, and they were going to meet on a certain street corner, and it was raining. So he got there early, and he think, well, maybe my friend has got here early too. And he noticed there was a church right there on the street corner. He didn't never been in that church before. And he walked inside, and he said he had, never, he had been in churches before, not out of devotion, but just as a curiosity, you know, Notre Dame and, you know, places like that. And, but it was a church that had perpetual adoration, and so they had the Blessed Sacrament exposed. And he talks about how he walked in, he's looking for his friend, but all of a sudden he started looking at this thing. They had this white disc in the middle. He had no idea what it was. He had no idea it was the Blessed Sacrament. And he said, for no particular reason, his gaze was attached to the second candle from the left. And then he said, all of a sudden, I heard, a name, a, I heard words. They were spoken, like they were spoken to me, but there was nobody there. And the words were spiritual life. He said, all of a sudden, a cascade of feelings came over me and it just changed me completely. All of a sudden, I knew that there was a God. All of a sudden, I knew that there was a purpose in life. All of a sudden, I knew there was love. Here's a man who didn't even know what the Eucharist was, and yet he was converted by the Blessed Sacrament. I suspect, you know, every priest would have stories like this, but it's amazing how many converts I've brought into the church over the years, and they all tell pretty much the same story. What attracted them to the Catholic Church was walking into a Catholic Church and knowing that there was a presence here. There's something here that I want to be part of. There's something here I just have never experienced any place else. Like Andre Fassard, it was the presence of Christ, the real presence in the Blessed Sacrament. Now you're probably thinking, uh, the greatest miracle of all 
is the one that happens all the time. When the bread actually becomes Christ's body, the wine actually becomes his blood. We call that, of course, transubstantiation. And, uh, you know, that's pretty much, uh, since it does happen so often, these other miracles really kind of stick out by contrast. Does the host have to turn to flesh and blood? No. Uh, it's enough that it is in a spiritual way. Jesus' true body and blood. Even though these eyes may not perceive any change, we know through faith that the change has taken place. One of my favorite stories of St. Louis, and there's many, St. Louis, St. Louis had a great sense of humor. Um, when he was first captured uh, at, the end, at the first crusade that he fought, he was captured, and the uh, Muslims were gonna kill him because well, he's the, the French king, you know. But he was so charming, he made them laugh, you know. He entertained them so much, they said, oh, he's a good guy, let's just ransom him. So they did, they ransomed him. One of my favorite stories about him is, um, he was, being a good Catholic monarch, he thought it was his responsibility, and it was, to perform all the corporal works of mercy, one of which is visiting the imprisoned. And every time he went to the prison, uh, the same thing happened. All these prisoners would get up, to, oh, your majesty, I'm innocent, I was framed, I don't belong here. They're kissing his hands, they're kissing his feet. I was, I'm an innocent man, I don't belong here. He goes, yes, 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 yes. He was cagey enough to know. So one time he goes in there and same thing, oh, your majesty, I'm innocent, oh, kiss, 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 you know. And he looks over in the corner and there's a guy just sitting there. And he says, what's your story? He says, well, your majesty, I'm guilty. I richly deserve my punishment. And so Lewis says, guards, get this scumbag out of here before he contaminates all these innocent men. <laughs> you gotta love a guy like that. Well, the story is that one day he was working late, he was to burn the midnight oil, and there was, a perpetual, there was a perpetual adoration in his chapel. And the one monk who was, you know, lived there, who worshiped there, burst in and said, your majesty, you're not gonna believe this. The host, the image of the birth of Christ is inside the host, you gotta, you gotta come see this, you gotta come see this. And Lewis just said, I know that kind of stuff happened, you know, I, I don't need to see it. It happens, it turns into Jesus' body and blood every day. You know, I don't need to see this miracle. Oh, that's kind of how, and that's kind of how we look at these things. Yeah, it's really nice when these things happen. And the thing is that they just don't disappear. I mean, I've been to places, um, in fact, back in the, um, about five, six years ago, we were in Santarum in Portugal, which has one of these where the host turned to flesh. And because I was a priest, they allowed me to go up and actually look face to face with it. And this is 800 years old and it's still there. And it's still, you know, exactly what it's purported to be. So my brothers and sisters, even though the, um, these exotic kind of miracles don't happen all that frequently, they do happen. And they cause us to think, hmm, very interesting. What really is the thing that every time we come to mass, Jesus is, the bread turns into his body, the wine turns into his blood. I'm gonna share with you one last story of another Eucharistic miracle. It's the Eucharistic miracle of Jersey City, New Jersey. Uh, Father Grishel told us this story once on retreat. He talked about how he went to a specific uh, Carmelite monastery for mass, and he noticed as he's driving in that these, some of the sisters were wearing the kind of outfit you would associate with a ballet dancer. They were clearly going to have liturgical dance, you know. But there were, the outfits were in the, car, the colors of the Carmelite order, and so, okay, fine, yeah. So 
So he talks to his sister and he says, sister, are you going to have a liturgical dance? And she says, oh yes, Father, we are, but at the end of Mass, after you're finished, fine, that's great, okay, whatever, okay. So he finishes Mass and these, these two gals, the one he described as being not sylph-like, meaning she was kind of portly, you know, uh, the kind of person you wouldn't expect to see as a ballerina. And um, so the music started and she made a lateral move to get into the sanctuary and fell flat on her face, hit the floor hard, you know. And he saw this and he starts chuckling and he says, he said to his fathers, I swear to you, I heard laughter from the tabernacle. <laughs> okay. Well, I don't know, he might have been exaggerating. But the whole idea, my brothers and sisters, is that, again, these miracles do happen. The power of God is very powerful indeed. And he calls us to believe, and these things do are to, to engender faith. And what really does happen every single time, the bread becomes his body, the wine his blood. And I thank you for listening.